0: For those of you who are visiting, I just want to say just a couple housekeeping things about uh, the text before us. Uh, You probably noticed that it's in your bulletin, so you can follow along that way, or if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there with us to Acts chapter 1, um, verses 12 to 26. Uh, We started last week a new sermon series through the book of Acts, and this is an awesome book in the New Testament that really explains the historical backdrop of a lot of the other books of the New Testament. But one of the most foundational things it does is it helps us to see how the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with the confidence that their Lord, who was crucified, has been risen and is now seated at the right hand of God in heaven, now sends his church forth. Starting in Jerusalem, moving out to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth with the message, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, risen from the dead, and now beckoning all people to come to him. That's what the book of Acts is about in a nutshell, and we're really glad that you're here to be able to share in this with us, and I thought that word might help you kind of get your bearings as we come to our text this morning. With that said, I'd like us to pray together for God's blessing on this moment. Father, we, we do want your blessing on this moment. Lord, I'm constantly reminded by you that all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. Lord, I pray that you would take the word preached today, your word, and that you would make it powerful in the lives of every single person in this room and that you would do it in a way that you would get all the glory and that your people would get all the help that they need. I thank you for your precious word. I thank you for how it just drips with mercy, how you care for us, and how you have a particular care, even this morning, for the backslider. I pray, Lord, that that care would come through powerfully, through your word, for your glory, for the good of souls, and really, Lord, for the, for the glory of your name, that we would represent you well in this world. Hear our prayers, Lord. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to begin by telling you the story of the rise and fall of Judas Iscariot. Many of you know the story of Judas at some level, some many of you have been Christians for a long time, but never have really put it together fully. And so this is meant to be kind of a gift for you to think about it as a total package. Some of you are hearing about Judas for the first time, and that's okay, too. And I'm hoping that as I retell this story, it will be a help to every single person in this room. The rise and the fall of Judas Iscariot, a potter, gets a surprise knock, at his door, at a time he's not expecting it, he's building the walls of his latest cr- clay creation, and he's startled. He quicks tries to wash the clay residue from his hands, pat his hands dry, get to the door, opens the door, doesn't necessarily recognize a face or a name, but their wardrobes give it away. These are the religious leaders from Jerusalem. Not wanting to be inhospitable, he invites them to his table and they cut right to the chase. They put a document on the table, a purchase agreement for the potter's field. Purchase price, 30 shekels of silver. Flashback, three years. A young man in the full flower and vigor of his youth, full of promise, full of potential, plucked up, as it were, out of obscurity to become one of the 12 apostles. He gets to be one of those few that travels day and night with Jesus, the one who many are seeing to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited Savior. Oh, the things he got to see and the things he got to hear. He got to see blind men receive their sight. The deaf regain their hearing. Lame walk and leap for joy. He got to see lepers who were outcasts for decades of their life become healed. All in a day's work, as it were, in following the Messiah. But the things he got to hear with his own ears. I mean, in one day, following Jesus, he heard more wisdom than he heard in all the synagogues that he ever visited growing up to that point in his life. And to top it off, not only was he one of the 12 and he experienced all these things, but he, Judas, got to be the treasurer of the group. The one who was in charge of the money bag. And these were some of the things we started to notice in Judas. Subtle, really, at first. His love of money. He did have the habit. Yes, he gave some of the alms to the poor from the money bag, but he also was in a habit of helping himself to the money bag. This also came out very clearly in one incident where uh, his reaction revealed a lot about what was in his heart. When a woman came, bringing an alabaster flask worth thousands of dollars. And she came without even, it seemed, a moment of hesitation, Mm -hmm. broke it and poured it on Jesus' feet with joy. The disciples were bothered, but no one was bothered more than Judas. On the surface, he said, come on, that could have been given to the poor. In his heart, he's saying, that could have went in my pocket. See, Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart all along. He knew that he had 12 and that one of them was a devil. In the Last Supper, that sacred moment where Jesus was instructing his disciples and telling them about his coming death, he said that one who dips the bread with me in fellowship is going to lift his heel against me in betrayal. And that very night, the devil entered into Judas. And all of those small compromises that led up to this point led up to a moment where Judas took a big and a bold step. He went to visit religious leaders who out of envy wanted to see Jesus taken out. And he offered himself to them, to be a guide to them, to find Jesus in a place where he knew he would be. He would guide them, price, 30 pieces of silver. So he leads them out to a garden that Judas had been privileged to visit so many times with Jesus. Leads this band behind him, with torches and swords and clubs, as if hunting down a criminal. And he leads them directly to Jesus and signals that this is your guy by betraying him with a kiss. He got richer that night. 30 pieces of silver. It's a lot of money. but he didn't realize fully that that would mean not only would Jesus be in prison and taken away, but he would also be falsely condemned and crucified. All these steps that brought Judas to this point where he would take such a big, bold step forward. Panicked. Grabbed the money, ran back to the religious leader, says, I've betrayed innocent blood. They say, what's that to me? You deal with it yourself. He throws the money at their feet, goes out from there, and Judas was at a crossroads. Where's he going to go? Is he going to run back to Jesus and plead for mercy? Is he going to wait in hope of a resurrection that he's heard about? Or is he going to crawl up within himself and take things into his own hands. i got to warn you that this next scene is quite graphic. Judas grabs a rope, heads off to a field, climbs a tree, fastens the rope around his neck and to the tree and drops himself there. And when you compare the accounts in the Gospels, you put it together that he's hanging from this tree, lifeless, his body's bloated, he, eventually the rope snaps, he falls, maybe hits a rock, bowels gush out, filling this field, as it were, with blood. Not long after, the religious leaders take the 30 pieces of silver. Saying, well, this is blood money. We can't use this in sacred dealings. We have to do something else with it. So they head off to have a meeting. They knock on the door. The potter is startled. They're invited to the table. They put the purchase agreement on the table. I would like to buy the potter's field. Purchase price 30 pieces. Of silver, Judas got to buy a piece of land, and this land became known as the field of blood. It was a monument, in one sense a cemetery for strangers, because that's how it was used, but in another sense a monument, you could say, to the rise and the fall of Judas Iscariot. This sermon is about the fact that there is now a vacancy, an empty office that needs to be filled because of the fall of Judas Iscariot. It's a problem that this office is vacant, and there needs to be a solution, and so that's what we're gonna look at. The problem of Judas's vacant office, the solution to fulfilling that filling that office. And then I want to stop at the end and I just want to look at one very important lesson that we're meant to take away from, you could say, the rise and the fall of Judas Iscariot. So look first at the problem. And I don't want us to underestimate this. Imagine, you know, traveling for three years, night and day with a fellow companion. On the surface, they don't seem all that different. But underneath, things are different. Things are really, really different. Imagine what this would have been like for the disciples, for these original apostles, for the other 11, traveling with Jesus, Judas, all the shared experiences that they would have had. I don't want us to gloss over the emotional impact that this would have had on the others that experienced the vacancy, seeing that empty seat at the table, seeing this office empty. Because one of them, who dipped the bread in fellowship, betrayed their Lord. And what blows me away as we look at that first paragraph in our text this morning, what blows me away is the response of this young church, this newborn baby church of 120 people gathered together. You have the the original band of brothers, except for Judas. So you have 11 plus others, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and uh, a few of the other faithful women that were traveling with them, and then Tim um, of Jesus' brothers. You just have this band, 120 total, and their response after all that's happened, and their response even to Judas. Now, you can say, well, what could have been their response? I mean, when someone... That they knew so well, that seemed so promising and so prominent, fell. And boy, did he fall. They could have been, they could have become extremely discouraged. They could have become cynical about everything, even about what it means to follow Jesus. They could have lived the rest of their lives with evil suspicions about everybody around them. This could have thrown their own faith into an absolute tailspin. But it didn't. What did they do? Let's read, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. That's not Iscariot. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Listen to that. Out of all that's happened, what are they doing? this young church. Who taught them this? They were, with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. They were not driven away by their emotions. They were tethered to Christ by prayer. And the fruit of it? Unity and stability. It's almost shocking when you stop and think about it, that this is the state of the church with all that has happened. And let me stress here the importance of prayer. It's not the most significant point in this message, but it is a sub-point that is extremely vital. Brothers and sisters, if you blow off prayer, you're going to get blown over by things in life. It is so important to be devoted to prayer Private prayer, like prayer by ourselves in our own prayer closets before the Lord, but also to be devoted to prayer together. Look at them. There's no, there's a reason why there is peace and unity and stability. There's a, you can only go so long riding it out, you know, with others' prayers. They need to be your prayers added to the midst. So I ask you this morning are you devoted to prayer? Privately and publicly, privately and corporately. As a body. This is going to be crucial, brothers and sisters. I don't want anybody, because I, I don't know what's going to come next in your life, but it's very presumptuous to think that you're going to stand just magically if you're not a praying person. God means for his people to be radically devoted to prayer. But don't just say, Oh, I pray by myself. Like, you need to be a person who prays with other Christians. Look at the example we have right here in this text and let it give you the kind of stability that you need in your life. I don't want you to be blown this way or that. And take heart here. like You might be young. You could be a newborn Christian, but you can still be strong through prayer. This is beautiful, this infant church praying like this. And you might lack power even for the things that you need in your life right now. But what are the apostles and what are the disciples, early disciples doing right now? They're waiting for power from on high. This is what they're doing. They're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit that's going to come, but you have to wait till chapter 2. But they were waiting in prayer. And there's just such a simple way to be ready for anything, including big decisions in our lives. I'd be amiss not to just point out the most obvious things. What are they doing? They're patiently obeying the word of God. That's what they're doing. Wait till you receive power from on high. So they're waiting and they're actively praying while they're waiting and they're intentionally staying close to God in prayer. I can't stress this enough. Prayer plugs us into the power from on high. Prayer is absolutely vital in the Christian life. So take this, even this brief aside in this message, as just a fresh opportunity to say, oh God, help me to be a praying Christian. So that was the initial response to this problem of the empty office, kind of surprising in many ways. And then Peter stands up and he kind of gives this report. In one sense, stating what everybody knew, the office is empty, right? And it says this in verse 15. In those days... Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Now, I don't want something that's very simple to go missed here. I think this is really beautiful. Wait, who, who's standing up in the midst of the brothers right now? Who's this guy? Peter. Well, what do we know about Peter? <laughs> Possibly one of the most unstable, unstable people we know, right? We read about him in the Gospels, and he's always acting, it seems, impulsively, often just on whims and emotions, like, whatever great idea comes to his head, he just acts on it, you know, measure, throwing out the measure twice, cut once kind of idea, like he just, he just dives all in, make the cut right away. This is Peter, this is what he's like, and, and that's just a little bit of his track record in terms of, you know, his character, but he is also the one who we know just denied Jesus, right? It wasn't that many days ago. He was looked in the face and said, you know him, don't you? And he said, no, I don't even know who you're talking about. And just a little bit before that, he said, Jesus, I would never deny you. I would die for you. Jesus said, yeah, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And he did, not once not twice, three times Peter had denied him. And you would think that this one who's standing up in this moment to give this report about this empty office, you'd be like, you'd think they'd be all like, who do you think you are (laughs) standing up right now? But the way that he's standing up and the dignity with which he's holding himself in this moment is suggesting something powerful to this entire assembly that is listening to his voice. Right now. In one sense, they're going, What'd you do with Peter? <laughs> like, this is a different kind of Peter than we knew in many ways, and this has come to pass. Luke 22 verses 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, just another name for Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he would sift you like wheat. Jesus said, But I prayed for you, that your faith would not fail. Listen to this. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So here is Peter standing up in the midst of this gathering and him being there and the way that he's being there in that moment is strengthening all the brothers. They might have saw what just happened to Judas, but they're also seeing before their eyes what God is doing in Peter. This is a powerful moment that I just do not want us to miss. This is Peter on the other side of the resurrection. It's absolutely beautiful. Then we look at verses 16 through 20. This report that Peter is going to give, I'm going to read it and then I'm going to break it down for us. Verses 16 through 20. Brothers, Peter says, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, uh, a I'm never going to get that. That is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And, this is Psalm 109 verse 8, let another take his office. So, what is Peter driving at here as he addresses the whole assembly? Right? He's pointing out the obvious, right? There's an empty seat at the table. The office is vacant, right? It's empty. And he also wants to point out that that empty office is there in fulfillment of Scripture. The Scriptures prophesied beforehand that one would betray Jesus, right? And Peter is burdened that everybody in the room connect the dots. Prophecy was made that that office would be empty, and Judas and his actions is what emptied that office, right? Right? He wants him to see it. But it's not just that that Judas' betrayal fulfilled scripture. He also wants to see that the scriptures also prophesied that that office would be filled. Okay? That's what Peter, that's really what Peter's driving at here, is that the scriptures actually said, not only may this camp become desolate, Psalm 69 verse 25, and let there be no one to dwell in it, then it says, and let another take his office. So Peter's recognizing what God's doing. This office is empty. That's a problem. And it needs to be it needs to be filled. Now what he does next is basically to say and it needs to be filled biblically. It needs to be filled wisely. And so now he's going to lay out some of the requirements for filling that office in verses 21 and 22. So let's read those together. 21 and 22. Some of the requirements. Who's going to fill this office? Well, they got to have these things, these criteria met. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, that's his ascension, right? One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So what's the basic criteria? One that was with us from the beginning and was an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, right? So someone who could be an eyewitness is going to be one who can fulfill this office. Now, as a quick aside, it shows something about the nature of the office of an apostle, right? They were original eyewitnesses. There's a sense in which everybody that follows Christ is meant to be a witness, but we are like second-degree witnesses, you could say, right? Right? we are we are by faith standing on the eyewitness accounts of those who were there, who looked Jesus in the eyes, right? But these were primary witnesses. And you're saying the one that fills this office needs to be a primary witness. And this is why we don't have apostles in our day. You can have people that are very gifted, have a lot of vision, maybe even stand out in a gathering of people, but the reality is is there's no apostles today. There were these original apostles that set off into motion this entire movement that we read about in the book of Acts. Now, there's something here I want to linger on, and that's this. Judas, he couldn't be, he couldn't rightly fill this office because what was the criteria? He must be a witness of the resurrection. Was Judas a witness of the resurrection? Let that settle on you. Judas was not a witness of the resurrection. Could he have been? Yeah, he could have been a witness to the resurrection. But what happened? Judas took his life in the cold of winter because he didn't believe that spring would come. Judas took his life in the cold of winter because he didn't believe that spring would come. He didn't believe that there was a resurrection around the corner, even though Jesus said that I will be betrayed, I will be handed over, I will be eaten, I will be put to death, and on the third day I will rise. Sad folly, the sad folly it is of giving up when a resurrection could be around the corner. and everybody in this room that believes in Jesus Christ needs to listen to this. Your resurrection is around the corner. So there's no place for giving up. It's a matter of fact. Your resurrection is around the corner. And I say this as a strong deterrent because Satan plants all kinds of thoughts in people's minds. And you need to hear afresh, there is a resurrection from the dead coming. And you'd be a fool to take your life in the cold of winter, not believing that a springtime is coming. Spring is coming. Now, what about the solution? So Peter laid out pretty well for us this problem of this empty office, but he also puts forward the solution for it, right? He already laid some of the groundwork saying, here's some of the requirements. He must be an eyewitness, whoever's going to fulfill it. So here's what they do. First thing they do is put forward a couple candidates, right? Some ones that okay, taking that basic criteria, those who are eyewitnesses, here's some some candidates that we should strongly consider and put before the Lord. And so you can look with me at verse 23. It says this. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So these two men. Um, they put forward. The congregation recognized two solid candidates from their vantage point, right? And then, next, they prayed for God to choose a candidate. Verse 24, notice how important prayer is in these passages. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Just notice their dependence on God. In prayer for this. They don't go at this according to their own wisdom, even though they had a good sense just by the basic criteria who would be right. They prayed and they were humbly admitting that they cannot see into the place that matters most. In other words, they can't see into the heart. They cannot see into the heart, but they knew confidently God is an all-knowing God. God sees into the heart of every man and every woman. God knows the heart of every single one of us. And they saw the crucial role of this office. And they wanted God to choose the one who is going to fill it. And so what do they do next? They cast lots to know what candidate God would choose. Verse 25 and verse 26. To take, um, to take the place in the ministry. Okay. So they prayed. Which one? God has chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. What a sad statement. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And so what are lots? What are lots? These are dice or kind of discs sometimes that were used to discern the will of God in very specific situations. For example, the high priest used to have inside of his breastplate a pouch of sorts where he had lots inside of them that he would cast in specific situations where he was trying to discern the will of God, make a judgment of some kind. And so lots, in this case, were probably um, these discs that were colored black on one side, white on the other side. And when you cast them, two whites would mean yes, two blacks would mean no, a black and a white would mean something like wait. You know, that is what we're talking about when we talk about lots. And maybe a quick question that you might be wondering in your mind, like, should we use those today? <laughs> should we use lots today? And this is going to bring us to something that's kind of important for us to notice throughout the book of Acts, because it's a narrative. It's telling a story, right? You read the Old Testament, and you'd say, oh... Just because something happened in a story in the Old Testament, does that mean we should do it? Please tell me no. Have you read the Old Testament? Like, We're going to be a really unhealthy church if we take that strategy, right? To just do anything that a narrative would present to us, right? And so when you read the book of Acts, you're going to see some things that are prescriptive, like it's just describing, or some things that are descriptive, they're just describing what's there, what just happened, and some things that are prescriptive they are actually teaching you should be doing this, you know, in some kind of a perpetual way. That's going to be important because we're going to see that show up at different times in the book of Acts, and we'll try to point it out as it comes. But I would argue that the casting of lots is not meant to be a normative practice for the church. Why do I say that? Um, Because when you look at the clearest passages in Scripture that are teaching on things like appointing new leaders in the church, the casting of lots is completely absent. We just looked at them, right? In the pastoral epistles. Those are the clearest passages in scripture about pointing new leaders. Hardly a more important thing you could do in the life of a local church, right? So, 1st Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, no, nothing about the casting of lots. So, I would say, no, I don't think that that should be the normative thing. Um, though, we had to make one exception, exception. Some of you might be wondering, how did we get such an amazing assistant pastor in Daniel Decker? You guys, I'm kidding. We didn't cast lots to get Daniel. You guys are like, oh, Lord. No, we didn't cast lots for Daniel Decker. God helped us discern it as the body of Christ. I'm really glad we did, brother. <laughs> Let me close with one Really? <laughs> I can't even get a straight <laughs> base right now. <laughs> Sorry, Daniel. <laughs> I want to close with one very important lesson that we're meant to walk away from in light of this text. We've considered the problem, right? the empty office, the solution, and how these early band of brothers and sisters went about fulfilling that office and really fulfilling the scriptures in light of it. Now, I just want to step back and say, what is one massively important lesson that we're meant to learn from this rise and fall of Judas Iscariot? The rise and fall of Judas Iscariot is a powerful lesson. And it's a warning for all who profess the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to explain a word that might be familiar to some of you and it might not be to others, but the word is this, apostasy. Okay, what does this word apostasy mean? Apostasy is one who when one who professes professes faith in Christ denies him or rejects him. Or turns away from him by word, and I'm gonna add this, or action. Okay? It's a betrayal of Christ. It's a denial of Christ by word or action. It's important to say word or action or both because some will keep professing Christ while denying him functionally with their lives, right? And so this is what apostasy is described as in the Bible when someone ultimately turns away from Christ. Now, Judas, his very name became a byword associated with this term, apostasy. When you look in the dictionary under the word apostasy, you're going to see a picture of Judas Iscariot right there. I'm joking. I don't know. There could be there. But (laughs) it should be, right? Like Don't be a Judas. Kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? His name carries that kind of weight now because it's so associated with this idea of apostasy. Judas was listed, you know, when you read the the groupings, the list of apostles in the different gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke—you read these, and he's always listed last, right? And then it's like put him last in the list, and then say because he betrayed Jesus, right? Or when someone's named Judas often in the New Testament, they have to say what? A qualifier at the end of it. Not Iscariot, right? To not be associated with the one apostatized, the one who rejected, the one who betrayed and ultimately denied his Lord. The one who, as our text said, had gone, turned aside and had gone to his own place. What a sad statement. So, apostasy is extremely serious. So what is it and how do we think about it? I just explained something of what it is. But I think it's important for us to understand this. Someone, even something, someone prominent could apostatize. The scriptures warn us that the people are going to grow cold at times. But I want you to notice God is sovereign over all things. He was sovereign over Judas's betrayal. And it did not thwart the ultimate plan of God. Instead, it actually fulfilled it. And God is all knowing. He's not surprised, right? Because He knows what's in the heart of every single human being. Now, I think it's also important to know when we think about apostasy, because the first thing we can, first conclusion we can jump to is someone who professed Christ and then abandoned the faith. Either by words or by action or by both, um, they it's it's easy to go jump to the immediate conclusion. They lost their salvation. And I would contend this morning, no, I don't think that's how we should think about it biblically. We should understand they didn't never they never had it. If they apostatized, it's because they never truly had it. Listen to this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, dealing with the exact same thing: people who apostatized turned away from the Lord. Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. In other words, their going out just proved their true colors. They were not of us, truly of us. And so we want to think rightly about that. They didn't lose their salvation. If they continue on that path, ultimately, the best biblical conclusion to come to is they never had it in the first place. So we want to think um, rightly, biblically, about when someone apostatizes, but also want to stand with clear, God-given expectations for anybody who professes the name of Christ. I've been massively helped by this verse. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says this, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So you tell me, what should be our biblical conclusion? If someone who professes Christ is unwilling to depart from iniquity, what conclusion should we come to biblically? Right? They're not true Christians, right? Because a true Christian will depart from iniquity. A true Christian is not someone who never sins in their entire life. But a true Christian is a repentant sinner, someone who will turn from their sin. And one of the questions, as we think about apostasy that should really loom large over our head is this: How did Judas go from following Jesus Christ day in and day in and night for three years, to becoming a guide to those who arrested him? And here's the answer to that question. It was a slow fade. It was a slow fade. It began with helping himself to the money bag over three years when no one else was watching. Feeding a love of money. Just feeding it. Feeding the monster inside of him until it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Until he got bolder and bolder and bolder in his sin. And then finally, he broke out and did what he thought he would never do in his wildest imaginations. Started with these small steps and got bolder. Or John MacArthur put it well: "No one ever fell far." Think about that. We hear it. Something hit the headlines about a Christian falling, maybe a prominent Christian, and we go, "Whoa! I'd never thought that could ever happen." I can guarantee you that it wasn't just this colossal thing that just happened. Small, secret, dark compromises in heart. We need to consider the small compromises that lead to the bigger, bolder steps. Are you looking for opportunities to betray Jesus Christ? Are you looking for opportunities to betray your Lord? Think about that. Don't make a truce with Judas-like longings. There's a little bit of Judas in all of us. And there's cravings of heart that if they're fed, will lead us away from the Lord who bought us. Do not make a truce with Judas-like longings. I don't care how small they are. We need to recognize how dangerous they can be. There is a better way. Is it harder? Yes. Were we told that it would be harder? Absolutely. But it is safer. It is more peaceful. It is more joyful. It's a great path to walk on with a clear conscience. It's much more noble. It's a path of righteousness, And it is narrow and it is hard, but it leads to life. And it's the only way to find actually true joy even in this life is to walk on that narrow road with a small band of pilgrims going in the same direction. Now, this moment that we're reading about in our text today, think about this. This field of blood that was purchased for 30 pieces of silver. I want you to think of it this way. This field of blood has become a monument, okay? A monument to the rise and the fall of Judas Iscariot. In the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, this famous book written by John Bunyan, right, that so powerfully and vividly displays the Christian life, one of the things I love about that book is just how it captures certain dynamics in the Christian life in just profound ways, And so things will happen that are extremely dangerous to the Christian. And the pilgrims that have learned the lesson of that danger will erect a monument right there where that path diverges. Why? They put it right there as a way of deterring pilgrims from going that direction. God has planted the story about the rise and fall of Judas Iscariot in his empty office at the beginning of the books of Acts, this book of mission, because he wants every single person that's going to travel this pilgrim away to have this massive warning at the beginning of where it can lead if we will give ourselves to Judas-type longings over time. and the destruction that it will bring. Let the story stand as a monument blocking the path of folly that you are tempted to take. Think about this. Judas acquired the field as a reward for his wickedness, Peter said. Judas was stripped of his privilege. His camp was made desolate. We should know that God will judge those who turn aside from following Christ Hell is the final resting place that those who choose to be strangers of God. This field of blood, this resting place of strangers is a monument of mercy for us who are traveling the pilgrim way. Judas' story and his gruesome ending reminds us of where sin can lead. It can lead us to dark and destructive places. Your camp could become desolate. You may find yourself all alone with your sins, eating the bitter fruit of your ways. You may lose the privileges that you once enjoyed. A clear conscience before the Lord. A spouse, children, family, church family, All these things can just be squandered because of a love of sin that's nurtured over time in the dark and then acted upon in bolder ways as opportunity arises and all self-control is broken down. And this is my deep longing in this message is that this sad memorial, that this sad memorial of Judas will be used of God to stop some poor soul from going down the same hopeless and hellbound path. Can I say that again? My deep longing in this message. And I think why God put this here where he did in the book of Acts is that this monument would be used of God to stop some poor soul from going down this path of destruction. May God do it, even in this moment. You know your heart, and God knows your heart. Maybe you're on the spectrum of just slow, small compromises, and you're just okay with that. May God show this monument to you, and may you recognize how serious this is. Because you know what? There could be a come a time where you get in too deep. And I don't want that to happen to anybody in this room. Maybe you're far down this road, and you've already made bold steps in that direction that have functionally denied your Lord. Boy, do I have good news for you from this text. This is a merciful monument for you. The reality is this. Apart from Jesus Christ, every single one of us are like Judas, I mean, that's really the basic story of the Bible, is that every single one of us has betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. We have betrayed the God who made us. He offered fellowship to us, and we lifted our heel against him in betrayal and wickedness. We chose a thousand other lovers instead of the one who laid claim on our souls. All of us are like Judas, even Peter. Remember how Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ not once, not twice, not three times. But here's the difference. The difference between Judas and Peter. When the crossroads came, Judas took it into his own hands. He wouldn't listen to warnings. He wouldn't listen to the good news that resurrection is coming. He stopped his ears And you know the gruesome ending. But Peter? Peter came to his senses. The text says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Because he was enabled to see how wicked his heart was. He was able to see how much he was willing to compromise. Just how filthy he was and to be truly cut to the heart, as we're going to see in a few chapters. To be broken by his sin. To think upon the dear face of his Savior and what he did. To feel truly ashamed. There was one thing standing in the way, chronologically, from Peter's fall and Peter's restoration. Can you tell me what it is? It's the cross of Jesus Christ and an empty tomb. Peter hung on. Peter didn't take it into his own hands. Peter waited in pain, no doubt, but he waited upon the Lord. And I want you to hear that this morning. Jesus went to the cross and he didn't die for people who loved him. He died for people who betrayed him. That's the point of the cross. That's the scandal of the cross. He died for people who lifted up their heel against him, who lived in high-handed rebellion against him, who did things in the darkness, even knowing that he would see it. He died for betrayers, Judas-like folk like us, as a substitute, bearing in his body our sins and the wrath of God that it deserves in that moment. He was willing, as it were, to be buried with strangers, to taste hell for us. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And those early followers that saw the empty tomb, do you know one of the first things that Jesus said to them? One of the brothers pointed this out to me the other day. It's been precious to me ever since. He said, Go tell Peter. Go tell Peter. Who do you think needed to hear that news right then? I don't know if anybody needed that news of a resurrection more than Peter, but Peter was waiting. Peter was waiting. He was a mess, to be sure, but he was waiting. Listen to the merciful words of our Lord. Go tell Peter. Well, I'm sent here this morning as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to say to you, if you're in Peter's spot, I'm here to tell you that there's hope in the cross, in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might be really far down that path and the thought of God using this word to stop you in your tracks, to say, don't go there. Cunning, that God would be so merciful. May He do that miracle in your heart this morning, if you're in this place, and even if you're compromising in these small ways, that He would stop you in your tracks and give you a holy sense of His presence, so that you would want to live more uprightly before Him. And frankly, if you're here today and this is not touching your heart in any way, you're dead as a doornail because every single one of us has Judas-like tendencies in our hearts. We need Christ. And I don't know a better way to put Christ before you than say to lift up this monument, warn everybody here, and say, look at the mercy of Christ. If the monument has revealed something in your own heart, let it cause you to flee to Christ. You know, there's many pilgrims that have traveled this journey before us. And they had to look at the same monument. They had to deal with the same, even having a regenerate new heart deal with the same Judas-like tendencies. But they could say, and they could sing what we sang a little while ago, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Praise the Lord. We are almost home. We gotta hang on a little while longer. Let's pray. Oh, Father of mercies, We are stunned at your holiness and how serious you take sin. And we are overwhelmed at the depth of mercy we find in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, my obvious plea continues to be that you would, by the power of your spirit and through your spirit-empowered church, bring wayward sinners home. Oh God, may we see our own holy responsibility to shepherd each other's hearts. To call out Judas-like tendencies that we see first in ourselves, but also in others so that we can walk safely on this pilgrim way. Lord, we feel it. This proneness to wander, to leave the Lord that we love. God, here's our hearts. Take and seal them. Seal them for thy courts above. God, would you forgive us for the ways that we have nurtured Judas-like tendencies and not see them for what they are, a slippery slope, little bumps on this slippery slope leading to destruction. Oh, God, help us to hate our sin, not just right now in this moment, but in the days and weeks and years ahead. Oh, Lord, help us to heed your warning this morning that's so loud and so loving. God, I pray this morning that you would have mercy on the backslider. <laughs> that you would help them to stop <laughs> before they end up in the field of blood. I pray, God, that you would help them to hear what you said. Go tell Peter. I pray that they would hear your words of hope this morning. And God, and I do not take lightly the uphill battle they have to face, having tasted so much. So I plead with you, oh God, show your absolute power in their weakness. I pray that you would expose the devil's lies and how he tries to entice and how he tries to isolate. Oh God, I pray that you'd bring sheep back to the fold where they can be saved. I pray for a godly transparency among fellow Christians who should know from the Bible that we all have Judas-like tendencies. Oh God, help us to have a holy watchfulness from one another. Thank you for the blessing of being a member of Fellowship Bible Church, Lord, to be able to be in a community of believers that wants to actually shepherd each other's souls. We pray that you'd help us to do it better, more lovingly, and help us to remember the story, Lord, of the rise and the fall of Judas Iscariot. In Jesus' name, amen.